It was as if I just took two or three steps back and started saying, oh, that's, that's who she is or that's how she is, as opposed to so identifying with her that I had no objectivity. So I, I think you, you may be onto something amazing, which I have, had not clocked until you just said it. Welcome to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our little ones and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and each week I celebrate and commiserate with best-selling authors, parenting experts, and mamas all over the world. I'm really pumped about today. Uh, some of you all know from reading a recent interview I did for Your Zen Mama, which is Teresa Palmer's amazing mom website. Uh, some of you from reading that might know that I went to a women's college. I went to Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. And while it wasn't easy and while it wasn't the typical college experience, it definitely didn't feel like that American Pie sequel. Uh, I wouldn't change it for the world because I would be such a different person if I hadn't gone there. Women rule! Yes, Sabrina, women rule! Our guest today, Margot Bergen, is a champion for women. I'm going to read her a little bio for you. It is, Margot Bergen has spent the last 20 years raising three children and working all over the world at large and small institutions focused on international development and women's leadership. She has held senior communications positions at Vital Voices, the Center for Interfaith Action on Global Poverty, the United Way, and the World Bank, and is now at Orb Media. She has a new book out that just came out this month from Penguin Press. It's called Navigating Life, Things I Wish My Mother Had Told Me. It was 14 years in the making. So she started writing notes to her nine-year-old daughter, Charlie, you know, and thought, maybe I'll hold on to them and give them to her when she graduates high school and goes off to university. Those notes have become this book, which is great because now I don't have to do that for my daughter, Sabrina. She's almost three. Um, no, that's not true. What I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to put all the Atomic Moms podcast episodes on an external hard drive and hand them to her when she goes off to college. And she'll say, Mama... What is this? I don't know what an external hard drive is. We don't have computers anymore. And that's when I will pull out of my purse, Navigating Life by Margot Bergen. <laughs> I know you don't have time um, for hardly anything, let alone books, uh, besides children's books probably. Uh, but when a woman sits down and pours her heart out on the page and lets us pretty much see into her soul, I think that's pretty damn sexy. And when someone has lived not an easy life, but who has worked her ass off and championed other women, and who wants to give tools to others to build a life of meaning, that's the fuel Atomic Moms runs on. Margot Bergen writes of consciousness, of legacy, of ritual. She writes to her young daughter, what does it take to raise you and raise oneself? We're always talking about reparenting ourselves. We are raising ourselves alongside our children. We're both always growing. I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. We'll be right back. Hi, Margo. Welcome to Atomic Moms. 
thank you so much. I've really been looking forward to talking to you and um, can't wait to, to get started. I loved reading your book and I it was really fun. I started a new tradition uh, and it actually started with your book where I get my daughter and we lay on the floor in her room and she gets all of her books out of her bookshelf and we lie and we read together. And then about 10 minutes in, she'll start climbing all over me like a monkey. But I was like, this is a good tradition. And I feel like it's pretty rare these days for children to even see their parents reading, right? Yeah, I think I think it probably is. I actually grew up without a television and so did my kids, um, which probably puts me in somewhat of a minority. We actually just got a telly, but the cable doesn't work. And now the screen has sort of blacked out. So <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm still in the... Uh, We've got shelves full of books, but but my kids were raised with books just because um, it just seemed to be a slightly more um, physical, tactile moment where we could just sit on the sofa. Charlie, to whom the book is dedicated, has been a huge reader her whole life. Actually, I used to say to my ex-husband that she was using the books to escape from us. It was like she she read books the way everybody else watched telly. So. Um, <laughs> But yes, no, I think I think reading is just so good for everyone. Actually. Well, and I found in my snooping, I wasn't going to mention this, but you must be really proud because Charlie, uh, she writes for The Economist, Culture and Lifestyle Magazine, 1843. And I was looking at her, some of her writing, and I was like, damn, Margot must be so proud. <laughs> you are such a good snoop because nobody... Um, you know, knows where she is because she's, you know, she's quite, uh, you know, she's retiring and, you know, she's the child who said to me at the beginning, don't look me in the eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I am. I'm hugely proud. And when she made a decision, I think really when she was about 16, said, mom, I'm going to be a journalist. I come from a family of journalists. I actually said to her, go for it, darling, because it's not a dying industry. It's just sort of reconfiguring itself and you can lead, you know, that profession and you bring your your wit and your intellect and your love of words to bear and just go for it. And really, you know, that's what she did. She ran the school paper and um, not very athletic like her mother. <laughs> um, <laughs> but she, she loves words and she loves culture and she's, she's ended up over there very happily. Well, I can't wait to talk to you a little bit more about the future of journalism, because it seems like you are on the forefront of that with your current position. Um, But first, I want to talk a little bit about parenting. And one thing that really struck me was you've got this great quote, and I'll read it. It's, keep in mind that being a parent requires a constant negotiation between having authority over your children and letting go of it. But we do not own our children, and our needs are not their needs. So our listeners, um, we, lo- we love talking about conscious parenting and parenting with presence. Uh, and I was curious about how you found this out, how you, how you sought out this truth, because I'm imagining you didn't find it in a book. Yeah, it was a really interesting 10-year uh, journey. And what was fun about the book was that, you know, writing it over a decade, I changed and um, I came from a sort of command and control structure in the UK where, you know, you do what your parents tell you if your parents are, you know, even capable of doing that. And I realized it didn't work with my kids. And I really did a couple of things, which is to um, I took up meditation because I had huge amounts of anxiety. 
And I started kind of anchoring myself and being present. And when I started doing that and kind of looking with a little bit more distance, a kind of ironic, well, not ironic distance, but I suppose loving distance at my children and realizing they are actually people who are worthy of respect, then I was able to kind of go, oh, you know, I didn't grow up with that kind of parenting, but this is the kind of parent I can be and I should be. And so it really is just as, you know, that writing that sentence is uh, the embodiment of probably an eight year conversation. And I would say quite a big struggle with myself on how to how to do it better and how to how to let go and enjoy it a little bit more. At the beginning of the book, and you just alluded to uh, the fact that she was the one that didn't want you to look her in the eye. Uh, I loved reading uh, your descriptions of Charlie, your eldest. Um, They are. I, I just kept thinking, oh, my God, Charlie's so lucky that her mother truly saw her, like really saw who she was. And we talk a lot on the podcast about the importance of observing our children, you know, not getting in the middle of it, not trying to fix them or change them, um, but just to sit and observe in a non-judgmental way. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, like maybe one of the tricks to parenting um, is to parent like an artist or to parent like a writer um, because you had this writer's eye as she was growing up. And um, I'm just curious, like, do you think I'm onto something there? Like, do, would you observe your children? Did you think that the the writer part of you helped you out? You know, it's so interesting you say that because it didn't occur to me until until just now, but I think you're right. I think... I grew up in a household where I was the youngest and I was the observer always. That was my role. It kept me safe. It kept me at a bit of a distance. And I think that putting pen to paper gave me um, this barrier, this uh, rationale for being able to just sit back and watch as opposed to, which actually also allowed me to be present, but present with a, with a, a retracted view as if I had pulled back the lens a little bit. Um, and I, I think you're absolutely onto something. It was as if I just took two or three steps back and started saying, oh, that's, that's who she is or that's how she is, as opposed to so identifying with her that I had no objectivity. So I, I think you, you may be onto something amazing, which I had, <laughs> had not clocked until you just said it. Well, we'll have to team up. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. uh, another thing that a lot of our listeners are constantly thinking about is when do they go back to work and do they go back to work and what will work look like? And uh, just reading your bio, I have to admit that I was so comforted by uh, the range of experiences that you have had in your life so far, that you didn't just stick with one company or even just one strength. And, um, and you write in your book that armed with no career, two infants, a self-employed husband, and a dire need for direct deposit, I start hunting for a job. And so you landed one at the World Bank. And I'm wondering, what advice would you give to mothers who are nervous about the resume gap? Try not to be nervous because I think the world is now changing. I really think the balance of inclination towards women who are doing totally the right thing by making the choice to be at home with their kids if that's what they want and need, just don't worry about it. It, it is a brilliant explanation. And, you know, I'm just getting to a point now where I'm sort of, you know, managing teams and sort of bringing on other people. And I think they just have to assume that that 
gap is no longer a problem. I'm taking a big optimistic high road on this one. You know, the gap to look after your children is exactly what society needs if that is what you want to do. And a very blunt explanation of looked after my children and I'm going back into the workforce. The only thing I would say, because, you know, as you know, I've had like seven jobs and you know, so many different bits and pieces of this career, is if there is time in the day to maintain some of the skills or some of the networks so that you don't have to start from scratch. Mm. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. There are ways to reach out. There's ways to network. There's ways to, you know, stay present somehow in the business or what you're interested in. Yeah, exactly. So without completely disappearing, because, you know, I I found actually I lost my job last year, which is slightly different than coming from, from having been at home with the kids. But what I did find, thank goodness, was that I had a network of people who were just so incredibly generous in reaching out and saying, oh, okay, well, let me think and how do I do that? So I think the sort of the parallel argument with somebody who's, you know, been out for five or eight years is just to say, you know, I think I will be going back into my previous, you know, career, maybe slightly different function. How do I, over the next 18 months, make room to to kind of stir that network, bring people back into my life so that when I make that decision, it's not a cold, you know, it's not a brave new world. It's, well, it's a brave new world, but it's a warm new world. It's It's filled with people who are saying, oh, yes, you know, we had coffee, of course, come in and have a chat, but just kind of warming up that network and keeping it going if you can. I was going to ask next, like, how can society do a better job at supporting working moms? But I think I want to ask, you know, we should all think about what we can do to help support these moms, not even just working moms, but moms that are coming back in. So like, how can we invite them back into the fold? Um, Or how can we be warmer towards uh, these women who have been doing something else for a bit? Um, I'm going to I think it's all about the tribe, right? So yeah. um, my daughter's only three. She's, but I'm starting to get more time in my life. So how can I help um, the mothers who have infants? And how can we? How can I bring them back or help them out so that they have more time also to like get back in the business to like refresh their resume, um, to go to that meeting. Uh, how can we support each other? Because it does take a village. And unfortunately, I mean, as a mom, it just feels like we're so isolated. And it's so easy for us to to think or like have those evil voices in our head being like, yeah, but you haven't done it in two years. Like you're you're out of touch. Nobody cares. And we've got to like stop that voice and call a friend. Um, And so those of us with older children, like it's our job to be that friend, replace the voice in that mama's head. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more because the voice, (laughs) I have had that voice. That voice has many different characteristics and many different uniforms. And it can really um, destroy your confidence. And if it doesn't obviously destroy your confidence, it will sort of eat away at, at, you know, your kind of your feeling of, of being anchored and centered. So I think the idea of bringing you know, knowing that you are a few years ahead of other women who are doing this and just having them for coffee and saying, hey, you know, if you're thinking about going back, here are some things that you could think about as as we're all, you know, we're all in this together. And I think, you know, I definitely found from working with thousands of women leaders around the world that this is not an American problem either. It is a problem in all societies where the, the onus always falls on the women. 
And as my friend's Peruvian grandmother said when she heard about women going to work, she's about 110 now. If she's still alive, she's like, oh, this is a very bad idea because now, now you're going to have to work and do the housework. Right. No, it's true. <laughs> it's, it's too much. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like, really? Oh, God, how do we do this? And I have no, no answer about the juggle. I just throw the templates up in the air and I pray that I only break, you know, three of them. Um, <laughs> You know, because I, you know, I, I went to work because I could just about afford some childcare, and my husband was self-employed, and we couldn't really give up my income, but we couldn't quite figure out the childcare, and it was just, you know, one of those crazy stretches, which I think, you know, and you know, our childcare minder brought her kids in in the afternoon to be with my kids so that we could all kind of, you know, share resources together. It was just, it was just this crazy circus community that was a lot of fun, but it was also about, you know, sort of economic resources being limited and how does she and I and our six kids kind of, you know, do it all together. That's amazing. Um, Like yourself, I have uh, suffered from anxiety, or I'll say I've learned from anxiety. And we were just talking about the voices in our head. And maybe because uh, my mother and stepdad are lawyers, but I I don't think of them as voices. Um, I think of them as the tribunal of assholes. And I <laughs> did you just say tribunal of assholes? That is a brilliant thank you, brilliant phrase. Well, they are a tribunal of assholes, and you're right. They have very they're uh, different characteristics. They're different people. I think when I you know when that movie Inside Out came out, I was looking at the trailer and I was like, oh my god, this is just sort of like the Pixar happier version of my tribunal of assholes. Like that's who <laughs> they are characters <laughs> for me, um, and for a lot of us. Unfortunately, the tribunal can consist of our own parents. And I think that's also, you know, that's why I do this podcast. It's probably part of why I imagine you wrote this book. Uh, You want it to be the voice of reason and love and acceptance for your children um, and not a part of that tribunal. You mentioned in the book that your mother was depressed and that your father was an alcoholic. Um, I'm wondering if you would share with our listeners just a little bit about what it was like when you were little. It was um, perplexing and confusing because alcoholism married to depression and my father was also a sociopath, which, uh, which in itself is a, is a very confusing um, acquired disorder, which usually um, happens to charming people who just cannot cope with nor belong in the world of truth. And um, I... You know, as I said, I was the youngest child. So what I did was I retired into reading and walking and sort of protecting myself from some of, you know, the clearly sort of anxiety filled, occasionally violence filled familial surroundings with really the escape of a young child in London who spent all her time on her bike or her skateboard outdoors as much as possible And I learned how to adapt, which is the worst thing that you can do. And the adaptation was to not speak my mind um, or really to look people in the eye. (laughs) Interesting. Well, wait one um, minute. That's so interesting that your child then didn't want you to look her in the eye. Yeah, I, the, the, the irony was not lost on me as I was shoveling mushy peas in her mouth and, um, and, you know, we're, we're quite similar in character in that we, we're not terribly um, extrovert type uh, people. 
And when I saw that happen, I thought, oh, I need to watch this. I need to I need to, to make sure that I'm respecting the boundary around her. And, and as I did, you know, from those years onwards, I realized sort of understanding her rhythm and her style and her characteristic. But but dealing in a very dysfunctional family is, um, you know, it's it's been looking back on it. I realize um, actually how bad it was. But when you're in it, you don't reckon how bad it is, but you do adapt to kind of survive um, through through the hours and the days. Um, but as I said, most of what I did was to escape as much as I could physically um, so that I could just, you know, be on my skateboard, which was really my, my saving grace. In my childhood, I would escape through listening to musicals all the time. I mean, I and I was obsessed with writing and um, and then and dance, and then it be, turned into theater for me. Uh, those were my escapes. And I'm wondering, did you find that you were able to feel when you were writing? Because a lot of children, when they grow up around unpredictable parents who have no boundaries or, um, or who uh, – Parents who don't have boundaries, where you, you or you feel like they need something from you, which you write about, uh, those children have a hard time feeling their own feelings or even knowing what they are. So, how did you? Was it through writing? How did you get in touch with, um, with even being present in your own body? I think through this sort of group of. Um, disasters that were the catalyst for writing. I think I was shocked into feeling something when I realized I had really hit rock bottom. And that was in, I think, 2000, because I think up until then, um, I had sort of floated along in quite a sort of surface way. And I think that's what particularly children of alcoholics, um, you know, are, you know, feeling their feelings is not something that is encouraged because then they would be in too much pain. So I think I think it was just coming to the bottom of my barrel and saying, you know what, this doesn't work. How do I go in search of being me? How do I become who I am? And um, it was literally looking at the ceiling that I just some the Romans call it the watch. You wake up at 3.20 a.m., you look at the ceiling and you realize, hmm, between the angels and the demons and the sunset and the sunrise, there is a time of reckoning. And I think, you know, this combination of, you know, the addiction and illness and depression and divorce and losing my job. And I sort of thought, I have just been given incredible choice right now to do something because I'm so desperate. And, you know, what you know, my father would have done is go for the vodka and his father and his father. I come by this alcoholic lineage very um, seriously. <laughs> and I just decided to go on a journey and, and the journey started then. And, you know, it involved therapy and exercise and, and meditation and um, just trying to feel myself. And I think finding my way back to who I really was then allows me to ask all of these questions over the decade of writing. And as I wrote more, I felt more, which was very frightening. Um, but when I started to recognize that my feelings aren't you know, going to kill me. They're just feelings and what they are and how to recognize what to do with the feeling and what it indicates. I then sort of became much more stable and much better equipped to raise Charlie and her siblings and to continue to write the book. We'll be right back after this short break. You 
you know, there's the book The Happiness Project. A lot of Americans are super into this idea of, well, we're just going to make things better and we're only going to look at the light. And um, it, that always makes me a little uncomfortable uh, because there is like the darkness and there is pain in life. And if we can't acknowledge that for ourselves, there's no way we can be a container for our children when they have big feelings. It, one of the things I love about your writing is how you acknowledge the darkness. You you say you are never going to be less alone. So you must not seek to replace yourself with someone else's attention or affection. No lover, partner, friend, parent, or child can enhance the essence of you. You do not need to look outward to be seen. And I um, I got shivers when I read that first part. You're never going to be less alone. Because I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. And it's true. Like, <laughs> let's just acknowledge it, you know? We're alone in this journey. We're all together. And you talk about, tri- you know, the tribe and um, and supporting each other. But I just loved that. Like, someone else can't fill us up. And maybe w- yeah. those of us who have complicated childhoods, we realize that, yeah, when that we weren't able to do that for our parent. Like, how many k- people are trying to fill that void in their parents still, even though they're adults mm. now. Um, and yeah. I just w- thank you for writing that. You're never going to be less alone. Well, it's funny because I've just opened that to page 181, and it's one of the last things that I said at the uh, the book launch, which is if there were just three ideas to give to Charlie that she could take away from this book. And I read that passage out because I don't even know how I wrote that. I remember exactly where I was when I wrote it. And it was such a, an almost uh, violent recognition of my solitude, but not my loneliness. And they're very different. And it was actually, I wrote it. Um, the kids were away, I think, with their father. It was like the first time I'd had three or four days alone, which I hadn't done in, you know, you know, a long time. And I just, that, it just kind of came out of nowhere. And I thought, okay, now I've said that, I think I don't mind looking down the elevator shaft anymore because <laughs> I have, <laughs> you know, you've got your tribunal of assholes. I've got my elevator shaft of life. And I'm always wondering what is going on down there. <laughs> but for me, it was sort of, it was, it was the ultimate emotional, spiritual, psychological safety net. It's okay. I just named what it is. I came into the world alone. I'm leaving it alone. You can't be less alone. So if indeed that is your kind of spiritual equation, that gave me a kind of an anchor, gave me a ground floor to go, okay, I've got it. You know, doesn't mean I don't look in that elevator shaft and think, oh God. But now I feel less anxiety. And I think I've sort of worked through a lot more about, you know, you don't have to reach out to ex-partner to kind of, you know, the clinging or the the desperation, um, which I oh, certainly yeah. have done in, in the past. Oh, know. man. Um, any any mamas out there that are, uh, you know, they're scrolling through those Instagram photos of their ex, or they're looking at the wedding photos oh. on Facebook, <laughs> you know, like that's the clinging we're talking about. I've been yeah. there too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the acid feeling in your stomach when you know they're having a better time than you are and, and you don't count and they don't remember you. Yeah, I've, I've been down that, that evil little path. <laughs> Um, when you were just talking about writing with your children away with your ex-husband, um, 
I love in the end of your book, when you're giving your acknowledgments, uh, I think you thank the coffee shop where you write all the time. And it feels like you have a lot of rituals in your own life. And I really love the celebration of ritual with your children. And uh, would you mind sharing with our listeners uh, just a little bit about that? Like what the rituals were that you invented for your own little family? Well, you know, it was so funny because it's so simple and really quite predictable. But I found that a lot of my friends weren't doing this. I'm a really bad cook. I'm actually not a really bad cook, but I'm not the world's best cook. And when I got divorced, my friends gave a book called How to Cook Almost Anything That Margot Won't Burn. So <laughs> we, like, thanks, ladies. Um, we, our ritual, our sort of, our, our sacraments, and I'm not saying that in a, in a, in a specifically religious sense, was a meal every single night. I dash home from whatever damn job I'm doing and I put a meal on the table and from 7 to 7.40 every night, that was our ritual. And even if I'm kind of folding laundry kind of while we're eating, and the question we asked ourselves every night was this, what did you learn today? And that was our ritual. And out of that would come the most amazing conversations. We would snake down some peculiar you know, circuitous route, and it would just be this sharing. And, you know, we'd talk about sort of, you know, the roses and the thorns, and and that was it. And it was just sort of 45 minutes of very specifically touching base. And um, we did that Monday to Friday or Saturday, you know, for years and years and years and years. And that was our ritual. So it wasn't sort of linked to a big set piece, you know, celebration. It was a it was a daily commitment to the conversation and the engagement. And I think um it worked. It worked. It was sometimes it was really bloody. It was like them going, Well, I didn't do the laundry and you haven't washed up and Brendan, you wash up and I'm like, okay, whatever. But it was still a way that we just sat and looked at each other in the eye and went, Oh, oh, hi again. It's you. Yeah, because I didn't see you this morning because you were out at six o'clock for hockey practice. And I was dashing off to a meeting with my hair dripping wet and no, no, you know, no makeup on and wondering had I fed the cats. <laughs> I also, I, that's so funny. And I, uh, I loved, I read somewhere about uh, your schedule or maybe it was in the book or maybe it was an article you wrote, but about how you could get, oh, it was probably in the book, where you could get to the office at nine o'clock with your wet hair. And I loved that because I was like, yes, can yeah. we just like... I mean, every listener out there, can we just like make an agreement? Like, let's just start a revolution here. Can we please just show, yeah. show up everywhere with wet hair? Because women do not have time to spend 30 minutes drying their hair. It's crazy. Yep, they, and men don't it, have it to is. do that. And if we had that 30 minutes every other day or every day, like imagine how much more we could accomplish. So I've never owned a hairdryer, much to my sort of girl's slight horror, because um, I never had the time. And they're like, Mom. And I was like, no, no, it's wet hair and shove on some Burt's Bees, you know, whatever, and, you know, put it back in a ponytail. Um, they did sort of do a slight intervention on me once when I was going out on some date. And they're like, Mom, <laughs> this is not the wet hair look. I was like, oh, ooh, okay, fine. Yes, I've got to do something here, right? <laughs> Um, I think that's going to be how I help the women's movement. I'm going to say, let's all throw away our hair dryers. Uh, but you worked for a while for the nonprofit 
Vital Voices. And for those of who those of you who don't know, it's a nonprofit uh, that discovers potential female leaders around the world, and you guys gave them, or con- they continue to give them the resources necessary to make a big impact in the world. So I'm wondering, what did you learn from your time there, and what would you say to women raising daughters about leadership? Well, I, I think what I learned there from the women is that we are all essentially the same. We are involved in the same struggle, which is to be heard, to be seen, to be counted, um, to be leaders of our families, of our tribe, of our village, of our town, of our nation. And that really struck me because I think I must have worked in about 85 countries and I kept hearing the same this same theme, which was so comforting, no matter what the different life circumstances were, we all want the same thing, which is a sort of a degree of equity and, um, and respect. And we all want our children to be safe, to be educated, to be healthy and to have prospects. In terms of the leadership, we're all leaders. That's what I learned. And that's what I told my kids. And I don't care how academically brilliant or not brilliant you are. The notion of understanding who you are and bringing that respect and that prize and that knowledge to anything you do to me as a leader. And when you step into that space of confidence, knowing that other people trust and respect you because you are someone who stands up and will be counted, that's leadership. And it starts almost at any age. You're currently now the Chief Development and Communications Officer of Orb Media. And uh, I looked it up this weekend. Um, can you share it with uh, like just a little bit about what it is? I feel like this is a revolution. You guys are delivering information to the yeah. public in a new and exciting and a factual way, which is like shocking uh, when you think about <laughs> what's on television. Uh, so can you yeah. just talk to us a little bit about what you're doing and what it, how how it's different, how you guys are shaking things up? Sure. Well, what we're doing is we are reinventing journalism using kind of three pillars that exist out in the world but have never been combined together for global storytelling. So we're using massive amounts of data that's open source. We're putting our journalists, you know, old shoe leather reporting on the ground. And then we are basically bringing in the voice and power of the crowd using an online survey tool that we just use through Twitter and Facebook. And we're combining that into looking at issues that we think are transnational in nature and that bring us together as a global community. So it's everything from education and health to transportation and finance and governance and trade. And basically, my, my boss founded it. She comes from an old media family, but... She believes that we are all one global human community and that the opportunities and the challenges um, that we look at through a journalistic lens will will lend themselves to solutions if we bring in the global human citizen. So we do it in multimedia. We do it in the way that people can easily access it. So everything from audio and text to the full multimedia video image production And um, we put it out there and we're doing things like plastics and water and how to access finance when you've just had a great, you know, financial shock. And what do we do about soil erosion? And we're going to be doing something amazing on the the aging bubble that is coming to the world in the next 20 years. So it's really a fascinating long form way to look at at what's going on in the world. And we don't, you know, we don't, you know, it's not particularly, you know, it's, it's, it's populist in the sense that it's beautifully written 
But it's not about celebrities. It's about real people doing real things that matter in the world to make our planet better. You know, it's things that matter. And when I, uh, I yeah. love that when you, you can almost, it feels like I'm kind of opening the head of the journalist because there are these options where it almost feels like I get to read their notes of like why they chose to feature this country versus another country. And it's like you get sort of yeah. the inside scoop on like w the way they're shaping the story. What were their sources? Why are they choosing to show this part rather than another part? And I just thought that was so fascinating because we we never get to know like how – the thing is made. It's like you get to see all the parts of it. And, and that makes me trust it as a source instead of just feeling like, oh, my God, they're just like feeding me these sound bites that like no, you know, some intern wrote and no one ever actually like checked the the research. Well, that that's exactly what we um, what what drew me to actually go work at Orb is this notion that we we are all playing a part in this story and that our voice as members of a global community counts in the way that Orb actually reports. So it's amazing. You know, we've had Ugandan farmers tweeting us and, and texting us saying, you know, we're looking at soil erosion here and, you know, we're about to launch on Indiegogo on Tuesday, this campaign for health and aging. And we've been talking to elderly people and public policymakers from all around the world who are saying, you know, what do we do? We're all aging. How is society going to deal with you know, the 2.1 billion people who will be over 60 in the next 20 years. So it's a huge amount of fun. And of course, it's women led and um, women founded, which I love. Me too. Yep. <laughs> Occasionally, I share a mom bomb, which is a quote uh, from our guest that really inspires us or is like a good kick in the pants. And so I'm going to share a mom bomb from your book, Navigating Life, Things I Wish My Mother Had Told Me. And the mom bomb is this, as you age and leave your youth, strength and beauty behind, replace it with wisdom and laughter. Everybody, you can find Navigating Life on Amazon, at your local bookstores, on our website, AtomicMoms.com. And you'll find a new Atomic Moms episode every week at iTunes.com backslash Atomic Moms. If you have an iPhone, just hit that little podcast app symbol and subscribe. Thank you so much, Margot. Oh, it's been so much fun. Thank you. I am about to download the app and start listening all the time. You are great. And thank you for everything you do for mothers all over the world. Oh, so kind of you. Thank you so much. Until next week, everybody, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms.